Hello, and welcome to another podcast from MLUX. I'm Mike Swift, and I'm the Global Chief Correspondent for Privacy and Data Security at MLUX. And I'm speaking to you today from my base in San Francisco, California. Today, our conversation is with John Edwards, the Information Commissioner for the United Kingdom. I first met and interviewed Edwards in 2017 when he was the New Zealand Privacy Commissioner and also the chair of the Global Privacy Assembly, which was meeting that year in Hong Kong. Edwards at the time was the data protection chief for a relatively small country, but even back then from the parade of data protection regulators who stopped by to seek his opinion as we chatted, it was clear to me that he was an important and influential person in the data protection world. Since then, Edwards has stepped out to a much larger stage at the ICO, where he took the helm at the beginning of 2022. I spoke to Edwards at the margins of the 2023 Global Privacy Assembly Conference in Bermuda. And as you'll hear today, Edwards favors an approach where he says the ICO won't measure success by the number of fines it imposes, but will also focus on guiding companies to stay in compliance with the law to prevent violations in the first place, an approach Edwards says will allow the ICO to maximize its finite resources. We discussed a number of other interesting topics, including a new court decision over the ICO's find to Clearview AI, the facial recognition startup, and its preliminary order to Snap over Snap's MyAI artificial intelligence chatbot, an order Edwards said was intended as a, quote, signal to the market on the quick deployment of AI systems. Here's my conversation with John Edwards. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for uh, taking the time to have a chat. So it's uh, coming up on two years since you uh, took the post of the Information Commissioner of the UK, and I'm, I'm wondering how you feel like it's gone so far. Uh, what do you feel like your biggest accomplishment has been so far? Um, gosh, I've been quite internally focused in, in the organization, understanding the culture, um, trying to uh, ensure that I convey my values and my approach to regulation. Uh, we've set those out in a document that we've called ICO 25. Um, and, you know, culture change doesn't happen quickly. It takes a concerted effort of a, of a management team um, over an extended period of time. But I think that we're getting there. You know, as a, as a whole economy regulator, we have limited resources and we need to make really deliberate decisions about where we focus our regulatory efforts. Um, we are changing our approach to um, regulatory intervention and recognising that uh, we don't measure success by the piles of fines. We've got a number of interventions over a spectrum and the team are getting more accustomed to using those and deploying them with good effect, I think. And so I've been really heartened by that. Uh, in our freedom of information side, we've um, turned that from really struggling and being a significant block in the whole kind of system to um, having the highest output and the lowest uh, workloads ever since um, since we began that work stream. So I've been very proud of the team that has identified better ways of working there. And we're seeing that all across the business. We are continuing to sort of keep ahead of technological issues, and I'm proud of the work that we've done in artificial intelligence. We've showed that we can uh, demonstrate to industry what our expectations of them are. Uh, for those who struggle, we've got guidance. Um, 
you know, when the Gen AI um, tsunami swept over, uh, we were there with um, guidance for business about how they could safely deploy it, whether it was appropriate in their business. Uh, and we've also shown that we can take enforcement action in relation to those new technologies. Internationally, we continue to lead. Uh, we lead resolutions uh, at this Global Privacy Assembly. Uh, we are active participants in the G7 and in a range of other fora. So, you know, I think the ICO is as strong and optimistic as it ever was. Um, I should pause for breath and let you ask another question. But, you know, we've also um, preparing for uh, law change with the Data Protection and, and Digital Information Bill. Uh, so we've been working closely with government to ensure that uh, that strikes the right uh, balance between uh, guaranteeing the fundamental rights of people in the UK uh, and not putting at risk uh, adequacy, uh, but at the same time, to the greatest extent possible, reducing the burden, particularly on small businesses. Uh, and I think that the balance is right, and we're ready to sort of implement that. But that, again, is a huge commitment of resource. So it sounds like you've really been focused on culture change and sort of positioning yourself for the three years you have remaining uh, leading the organization. I mean, what are your real goals uh, for those three years? Uh, well, I mean, I don't want to sound too modest, but um, a, a seamless transition. I want to leave my um, successor uh, a, a business that has made the transition from a corporation sole, uh, which is what we are now, to a new governance arrangement, which is a chair with a board. Mm-hmm. I want to have embedded those changes. I want, to, I want us to be leading the world in agile regulation. I want us to be able to um, identify and respond fast to emerging threats in the economy uh, and to be there to uh, support business at low cost. And we've had some fantastic initiatives in that space. We've got a service called uh, Innovation Advice, uh, which guarantees that if you've got a question in your business about how to apply the UK GDPR or any of the other laws that we apply, Um, that will get you an answer within uh, 10 days. Uh, We've got the sandbox, which is for more uh, complex, sophisticated applications and new business models. Um, That's, I think, working really well in a collaborative approach with business. We've got the DRCF, the Digital Regulation Cooperation Forum, which is comprised of the ICO, the uh, CMA, the Financial Conduct Authority and Ofcom, And, you know, again, we are showing international leadership in coordinated regulation across those different domains. And um, that will continue to grow. We've been funded in that organisation to provide a multi-agency advice service. And again, this will show industry that they needn't invest time and time again to go around all the different regulators to figure out how uh, the regulations uh, apply to their innovative use, particularly of um, artificial intelligence, but a range of other technologies. So um, that's going to be stood up by the, um, the middle of next year. So there's yeah, an awful lot that is just you know business as usual, but also transformational. So I heard you mention the, the 10-day turnaround yesterday, and I was really struck by that. I, I've never, I, I mean, I, I'm not aware of any other similar system like that, that a regulator provides anywhere in the world. Um, is that something that you brought with you from New Zealand, or um, are these values that you brought from New Zealand, do you think? It's, it's something that the team was working on before I arrived, uh, but it is very much consistent with the approach I was taking in New Zealand. The great value, and I think we've talked about this before, of a principle-based regulation system as we have with UK GDPR 
is that it's technology neutral. It can cope with the new technologies. Uh, it can cope with an, an infinite variety of data transactions across the economy. But the downside of that um, principles-based approach is that it can lead to uncertainty in certain domains. So I think it's our responsibility as a regulator to eliminate that uncertainty. And that's the service that we're providing in Innovation Advice. I mean, we provide a sort of a, a funnel of, um, of services. We get 33,000 calls or so a year through our um, customer service line. And I and many other members of the team sit and listen into some of those calls um, from time to time, and they span every every conceivable element of human activity. Um, and uh, the team at those um, who uh, staff those phones um, provide an, a huge service, really fast, on the spot, to a whole lot of sort of retail routine uh, inquiries. But then there are um, organisations advised by lawyers, they may be risk averse, they want to do the right thing but they're not quite sure, they're going to need a higher level of assurance and that's what innovation advice does. It says, you know, you put, our, put your question in front of us, we'll go away and think about it, if we need more information we'll ask you but we will come back and tell you where we stand on this within 10 days. With the sandbox it's even more granular and sophisticated. We walk along beside you, we say, what are you trying to achieve? How many parties are there to this arrangement? Uh, what's the data that you need? Uh, how are you going to use it? How do we identify the risks and how do we mitigate against those? How do we help you get to your endpoint in ways which are consistent with um, data protection law? And that's, that's a really collaborative approach with industry. So, you know, I would rather invest in that side of the business. We can, uh, you know, if you look at the work we've done with our children's code, the age-appropriate design code, We've worked with industry and we've achieved real tangible outcomes, uh, many times more impactful. Actually, I don't like that word, but there you have it. Um, you know, it's, it's affected the lives of millions of children uh, and families um, in ways that a hard-edged enforcement action with a fine could not. Um, and so that's a slight reorientation of the organisation. We're not abandoning enforcement and fines, but they are the very top end of the sort of pyramid of regulatory responses. And as you'll know, we have issued fines. Um, we've issued fines uh, against TikTok for um, unlawfully uh, allowing children under 13 to gain access to and to remain on their platform and we've issued a fine against Clearview. You'll be aware that just today the decision has been published in that to overturn that but uh, nonetheless I think the messages that those regulatory actions send into those marketplaces are really really important. And being from California, I know that you've had real international influence. I mean, California has passed its own kids code. It looks like it may not survive uh, the court review. But um, uh, I mean, is that part of your goal and sort of looking at where the UK is in, in data protection? You obviously have a close legal relationship with the EU. You have strong economic and cultural ties with the US. Do you see the UK having kind of its own distinct place in, in the data protection world? Yes, I think so. Uh, I do think so. I mean, you know, we, we have potential to act as a bridge uh, between different uh, data protection traditions. I mean, obviously, um, our law will continue to strongly resemble the GDPR, but the approach we take to it might more resemble um, an Asian Pacific approach of, uh, of um, ensuring that um, organisations are empowered to get the greatest value out of data, uh, to take the greatest advantage of innovations. Uh, I mean, I, I think our approach 
is not dissimilar in some ways to the Federal Trade Commission. Um, and and I, I speak with my colleagues there uh, frequently. And they are willing to regulate new technologies with the, you know, with the sort of skeletal framework that they have. But they apply similar values. And when we see emerging technologies like AI, we apply a filter of fairness, accuracy, transparency. Uh, and these are underpinnings of data protection law. And they, it's not a stretch. Uh, you'll know perhaps that we have um, issued a preliminary enforcement notice to SNAP and awaiting their representations. But again, it's it's very important, I think, that we signal uh, to industry that we're there to walk with you or to help you uh, if you want to understand your obligations under the law. Um, but if you thumb your nose to them, if you don't think carefully enough about the risks in advance of the rush to market, uh, you know there may well be consequences for that. So you talked about agile regulation earlier, and I would think that uh, the SNAP preliminary order might be an example of that. I, I mean, can you sort of uh, describe that in a little bit more detail and what you really see as the dangers being for AI in relation to data protection? Yeah, I think it is an example of um, of agile regulation, and it is something that it's a muscle that we, we, we need to become more used to flexing. Um, and the SNAP intervention was important because we saw something that we were concerned about uh, back in March uh, when the product was first deployed into market. Uh, we asked questions, we brought together a team and um, expedited that. Now normally, you know, from start to a, um, a preliminary outcome, it can take three or four years uh, in our organisation. And so showing industry is important, but just signalling to our own teams what they are capable of, I think, is really valuable, saying, well, you know, we can actually act fast where there is anticipated harm that we need to get ahead of. If, if we can prevent harm, then that's, I think, immeasurably more uh, valuable than going around and punishing it afterwards. And did you have a dialogue with Snap, or was that an example of a company oh, thumbing no, of its course. nose? Of, of course we have. Um, I don't think we see eye to eye, and we have, of course, simply uh, issued a provisional notice saying, um, based on what you've told us, based on our view of this um, product and, and the, the way in which it uses data of, uh, of young people, we we don't believe that you've adequately considered and mitigated the risks. Uh, now they have an opportunity to come back to us, but you know without prejudging it, and, and and Snap has that open opportunity to come back. I still thought it was important to signal to the market that these are the kinds of steps that are expected of you, and if you don't take them, then you can expect prompt regulatory action. You know we've come past the time where uh, innovators and digital industries just forge ahead with their business models and get so far down the track uh, that they are too big to unravel. We're not having that this time. So with generative AI, these are not magical new products. These are fantastic um, uh, technologies with enormous potential. But they also have some potentials for risk. And the regulatory model in the UK requires an ex-ante uh, assessment of that risk and if that risk is uh, deemed as high there are requirements to consult with my office for example and so those are the kinds of expectations that we will be enforcing. I was really struck yesterday by your formulation that uh, we could be swamped by this tsunami which is generative AI or we can surf the wave into shore and you seem to be saying that um, uh, and I just heard you use the formulation this time again um, that what happened with social media was kind of a lesson that the world's data protection regulators don't want to 
repeat. Is that fair? Yeah, that, that's exactly the point that, that, I mean, you picked up exactly on the, um, the subtext that was in my remarks uh, yesterday. Um, I think, you know, it's, it's not just social media, it's search as well. Um, so, you know, I think regulators, lawmakers, um, even consumer advocates uh, were asleep at the wheel uh, as the business models were developed. Now, you can read something like um, Shusana Zuboff's um, Surveillance Capitalism and, 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 and see it perhaps as a, as a carefully orchestrated conspiracy, or you can see it just as something that incrementally and organically developed um, uh, and before we knew it, it had uh, gotten out of control and too big to sort of put back in the box. I'm kind of, I tend to the latter view, uh, and I want to ensure that uh, we as regulators are doing everything we can to keep ahead of uh, risks that are presented by uh, new technologies and to ensure that they don't get to a scale where they can uh, be responsible for harms that are un- uh, difficult to sort of unpack. I did want to ask about the uh, Clearview AI decision today. Um, you're fully informed on it, it sounds like. What's your reaction to that? I mean, what's the next step? Well, I mean, there's some quite complex legal points in there. So we are going to take some time and consider our position on the on the judgment. Uh, one point that was argued was the extent to which we could establish that the maintenance of a database of billions of photographs, which inevitably must include photographs of uh, UK citizens or UK you know, people in the UK, could of its own be considered monitoring. And monitoring is something that would be required to bring an organisation not based in the UK within the extraterritorial jurisdiction uh, of the Information Commissioner. And it appears to us that um, the tribunal has come down very firmly on the side of yes on that. And I'm, I'm quite pleased about that. There are other aspects that I think we just need to take the time to think through, to take some advice on. Uh, and to to think about whether it's um, uh, going to be a useful use of resources to seek further clarification of the law. So, how would you do that? Would that be an appeal to a higher court? Or? That's, I mean, that's the that, that's the possibility. Yeah. Mm, okay. Any timetable for making that decision? Uh, well, there will be actually, because there are you know appeals have to be lodged within a certain time. I don't have those timelines uh, in my mind. I can come back to you with those, but my legal team will be poring over the judgment and giving me some advice on uh, whether we ought to do that or not. Um, I've just come from a panel on um, data transfers, and obviously they were talking about the uh, global cross-border privacy rules, and I know uh, the UK has now taken at least the initial steps to be an associate member, I think is the proper term. Why was it important to, to join that for, for you guys? Uh, can you just sort of walk me through that a little bit? Sure. Um, I mean, I th- really, the question is better directed at um, the Secretary of State. So that, that's a government and political decision about seeking uh, that associate uh, membership or, or further seeking full membership. Uh, as an independent regulator, I don't make those decisions. Um, but obviously, if uh, the government were to pursue the global CBPRs as a, um, a transfer mechanism, uh, the ICO would be involved in uh, advising on that and enforcing it. So we're very, very interested. And um, I'm interested in seeing you know, whether the skeleton that has been lifted from the APEC CBPR 
can be transformed into something that is recognised internationally. Um, you know, we've heard from the panel that you and I just watched a representative from the European Commission saying, um, well, we're interested in seeing new certification mechanisms, but this one uh, has a long way to go before it would be acceptable. I would have been interested in hearing uh, what it would look like for that representative to say, yes, that looks like something that we could recommend. I think it's really encouraging that um, the BFDI, my um, German counterpart, is participating in those meetings, and there's one next week in San Diego. Um, so we will be, uh, you know, the ICO will be um, uh, observing and, uh, and you know, looking at, uh, at that. I'll be meeting with um, a colleague from the Department, U.S. Department of Commerce uh, tomorrow to um, get her understanding of the challenge ahead and I'm really interested in understanding the kind of demand side issues actually because when you look at the APEC CBPRs um, there's been I think 12 companies certified in um, Korea, I think there's been four certified in Japan uh, so we're dealing with quite small numbers and I'm, I'm keen on understanding uh, you know what? What would influence the demand for a global version of that certification regime, and also just um, practically how a market might develop for accreditation agencies? I think that's an issue that um, would be interesting to sort of see some analysis on. I think that's been as difficult to get started as uh, getting the companies to sign up. It's uh, and I, I when I've been covering it for years, it seems to be kind of a chicken and the egg problem. I think that's right. It does need to get to a sort of critical mass, but um, the APEC version has been uh, out in the market since 2011, I think, um, and has struggled to um, make an impact on the on the marketplace. So, I'm, I mean, I'm interested in understanding what it would take to get to a, um, a point where it would be a, a viable international transfer mechanism. I think the, the reception from Europe would be a big part of that. I think that that would address the demand side quite significantly. Then I think businesses would see the value of it. Um, but clearly businesses haven't seen the value yet of the APEC version. So there's, there's a long way to go. Um, it may be that this version of the of the global CBPR um, is is not the one that's going to um, solve the problem of you know international interoperability. But maybe the version after this one will be, and maybe this is a necessary step to getting there. Some of your deputies have recent, said recently that uh, enforcement of cookie rules is a priority for the ICO, and I'm just wondering if you can say anything about the progress you've made on that. Um, can companies expect to see enforcement soon? Yeah, they can. We, we are launching a program. I'm not sure how much um, I can say about that because um, uh, I, I, I don't think I was briefed on where we are. I know we've had discussions internally, but you know, the, the, the shorthand version is... It should be as easy to reject all non-essential cookies as it is to accept them. And, you know, that's not a complicated message for, um, for industry. When we look at the top 100 visited UK websites, or is it the top 100 businesses, I can't remember, something like 30 um, meet the standard that we would expect for ease of rejection of cookies. Um, and so we'll be writing to those that don't meet the standards uh, 
and uh, giving them an opportunity to do so. And um, then if they don't, we'll come back after a bit and they can um, get a first-hand taste of uh, what enforcement looks like uh, in this new regime. You're also trialing a new public sector enforcement regime where you're generally not going to enforce against public sector bodies. And I'm just wondering how that's going. I mean, do you have any data yet on how effective that's been? It's it's a mischaracterization to say that we're not enforcing. We are enforcing. Okay. Uh, what I have said is that um, because of the particular way that um, public finance works in the UK, I'm not sure that fining is necessarily the best way of achieving compliance. And I can I, the best way of explaining, I think, Mike, is to is to take you back to the uh, genesis of the review of that public sector posture, where um, the team bought me a, um, a a breach that they had investigated over some time. Uh, an organisation had sent an email in a. CC with the email addresses were in the CC field rather than the BCC, and it was a sensitive matter of HIV AIDS um, uh, patients, I think. Um, and it was an NHS trust, that's National Health Service. We have a socialised health system in the UK. So that's a fully um, uh, funded, and it was in a devolved administration as well. And that, that means, so I, I was new to the UK at the time and asked about, uh, well, what would fining this trust, £80,000, mean? And because of the funding model, that would mean that money comes straight out of uh, the pot that is available to provide frontline services. Now, when you stand back for a moment and, th- and think, well, what are we here to do? You know, we see 100 people have been uh, exposed to uh, indignity, humiliation, distress of having their privacy breached. And as a consequence, we're going to take £80,000 out of a service designed for them. We were punishing the victims uh, of that breach. So from there we we actually had a wider review and we looked at the, the um, that, that's the sort of devolved services and, um, and, and also in local authorities. Fines come straight out of the pot that could be used to fix the deficits we're seeing that caused the breach. Uh, or come out of the, you know, as I say, directly out of the the list, the number of people available for hip replacements, or or you know, some metric like that. We looked at Whitehall as well. Now, Whitehall is the central government, uh, you know, the big departments and things. And and what what was happening is that we would issue a fine uh, of half a million pounds to an organisation. It would write us a cheque. That cheque would go into the consolidated fund. That department would go back to the Treasury and be reimbursed from the consolidated fund of £500,000. Now, you know, you don't have to be an economics genius to know that there's not a great incentive system working there. No one's losing a bonus. No shareholders are out in front of the directors with their pitchforks demanding accountability. Um, so we're looking for for ways of incentivizing compliance uh, and uh, learning the lessons uh, of breaches and sharing uh, examples of good practice across the public service. Uh, I think it's working well. You quite rightly asked me for the metrics and I haven't got those for you yet. We're still developing those um, uh, measurement mechanisms. We're one year in. What we are seeing is is a good level of engagement. You know, the interesting thing is, you know, we, we are also naming, we, we are issuing reprimands more, and we are publishing them more. So that's a new phenomenon under my uh, leadership of the organisation. And for the people who say, you don't enforce, this is a slap over the wrist with a wet bus ticket, they should see the threats of litigation we get over the prospect 
of being publicly named. These are the real sanctions because then there's a public accountability. They have to stand up and be uh, and you know and and explain themselves. Uh, sometimes that is a direct uh, Westminster accountability where there are explanations called for in Parliament. And you know in a in a, a Westminster parliamentary democracy that to me seems entirely appropriate. And we haven't abandoned fining altogether. We have said for the most egregious cases, it will be necessary to send the kind of message uh, that there will be financial consequences. And I think that's important not just for the public sector, but for the private sector. So for each reprimand or intervention that we do uh, where we apply that public sector posture, we note the nominal fine that they would have got but for this change of approach. Now that's a message to the to the private sector, that if you send an email with sensitive information that goes to a hundred people you know and you expose their identities to each other the nominal fine will be half a million pounds in this case because of the application of the posture um, we're doing something different but again you know that does send a signal of what the kind of tariffs are that empowers I think data protection officers to go to their um, their boards and to say listen we've got the same vulnerability we need to move from CC to, to mail merge or whatever it is uh, we need to improve our redaction software um, and uh, I think that is uh, improving standards we are seeing improvements across the public sector so that's another example of you trying to push with the carrot and the stick in a sense and 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 yeah um, one thing I've heard about uh, here at the conference has been the uh, breach of uh, the police services in Northern Ireland is, is that been a lesson for uh, what you're doing with public sector and I mean might it cause you to change course at all or uh, no it won't cause us to change course um, at this stage I mean I've committed to a two-year trial of this posture the the police service Northern Ireland case um, is clearly I mean we are still investigating it of course but um, you know I don't think it's being predetermining to say it is it's an appalling and very frightening uh, breach of trust we were able to respond in one respect quite promptly there. The the circumstances around that was that we have a, a, a freedom of information service that's run by civil society, which allows people to lodge FOI requests through their website. The public authority is then obliged to respond via that website and they upload their documents. What's happened in the public service, uh, police service Northern Ireland case was that uh, the police service responded to a uh, what do they know based request. They uploaded a spreadsheet. Uh, they didn't check that there was concealed information on that and it was published on the website and it revealed the names and workplaces of 10,000 um, members of that service in an environment of still considerably dangerous sectarian tension. Um, so that's very disconcerting for people. People had to make um, different security arrangements. What we have done is to go out to all organisations that are subject to Freedom of Information Act and say, don't upload spreadsheets to this website. It's, you know, I've seen too many of these. It's, you know, there are pivot tables, there are those hidden tabs. It's just too easy for, uh, you know, to, to pick up an original source document from your books without thinking, put it up there and, and, and put out into the world information that you didn't intend to. So we've called for a moratorium on 
uploading original source uh, spreadsheets onto that platform because once you put it on the platform, it's available to all the world. You can't say, oh, it's Mike Swift, he's a responsible fellow, we'll call him and get it back. It's been exposed to everybody. Um, so that was, I, you know, we, I, I felt an obligation to act very fast then and, and try and get that message out into the community so we avoided those um, instances in the future. I think the first time I interviewed you was uh, either 2017 or 2018 at one of these meetings in Hong Kong. And um, so obviously you believe in this forum. And I just wanted to close by asking you about that. Why is it important for the world's regulators or data protection regulators to get together annually like this? And what do you get out of it? Um, when, when we spoke in 2017 in Hong Kong, I was the chair of this forum. So um, uh uh, you know, and I came from a smaller authority, and there's enormous value from uh, for smaller authorities to have the collegiality uh, of some of the larger authorities to see the kind of work that organisations like the ICO, Keneal, the FTC are doing to have conversations about big tech, which you know, as a small authority, uh, you just can't influence. I mean. The first night here, I don't know if you saw, but we had a panel with um, privacy authorities from around the Caribbean. That was great. It was fantastic. And we had, you know, Trinidad and Tobago and the Bahamas and um, Bermuda. And these are tiny agencies. Uh, and and they, like I was in New Zealand, have to be net takers of um, technology. So to know that they are in the company of organizations like us, to see the kind of actions that we're taking. It's very empowering for them, I think. And to hear their perspectives, I think, is, has been really valuable. We get to come together and issue resolutions. And, and I have had times when I've been skeptical of a resolution. Do they just, you know, they're just statements of best intentions and they sit on a shelf. But in fact, um, I think they're very powerful because they are supportive of um, other authorities in their communities where they are having to argue for the value of the work that we do. Uh, they are important in sending messages to industry about, uh, you know, don't play us off. We've seen, we, we are at the ICO sponsoring uh, a resolution on AI in employment. Um, that'll be voted through. They'll, we've got a whole lot of co-sponsors. And that sends a really powerful message to the developers of those technologies to say, well, okay, um, these guys are on the lookout for snake oil. Um, so, you know, make sure you can justify claims you make about these products. Um, don't use uh, sensitive information. Don't, don't introduce bias into these, um, into these systems with uh, poorly trained data uh, models and things. So, yeah, I, I, I do think it's increasingly important that we uh, come together, share information and experiences and perspectives. I mean, it's been wonderful, as I say, having the perspectives of some of those um, uh, authorities that come from different geographical, cultural and legal backgrounds. Thank you very much. I really appreciate uh, the time and your thoughts. Thanks, Mike. That was John Edwards, who heads the Information Commissioner's Office in the United Kingdom. He was speaking to me at the Global Privacy Assembly Conference in Bermuda. And that's all for this special edition of the MLEX podcast. Thanks for being with us. And please stay tuned for more interviews coming your way over coming weeks. This podcast was produced by James Paniki. I'm Mike Swift, MLEX's Global Chief Correspondent for Data Privacy and Security. And from everyone here at MLEX and LexisNexis, thanks for being with us. <laughs>